Dr. Eileen Hale, your host today with TTELT, Teaching Tips for English Language Teachers. I have a new board member joining us today, Melanie Gobert, who has served as the past president of TESOL Arabia and is serving as the chair for the conference of TESOL Arabia in 2023. Welcome, Melanie. We're thrilled to have you as a new board member and as a podcast guest for us today. Thank you for making the time to join us. Thank you very much for having me. So today our topic is going to be around the myth of learning language. This is based on some work that Melanie is very familiar with. Melanie, would you like to give a little background on what's behind the myths of language learning? Well, actually, it's from an article written by Willie Renandia, who is from the Singapore Institute of Education, about the faulty beliefs that teachers need to unlearn. He has a, a Facebook group with about 10,000 members called um, Professional Voices Teacher Development. And I read it the other day because I am a member of some Facebook groups who discuss teaching issues. And, it, you know, it struck a chord. Okay, so we were just going to focus on three of those myths today, because he has quite a few. Would you like to introduce the first one we had talked about? Well, the first myth is people who begin second language learning at a young age will be more successful. And I do have a few things to say about this, but I welcome you to jump in whenever you want to. I mean, I met when I was working in Saudi Arabia, I lived next door to a woman who, a French woman who uh, spent a lot of her childhood in the United States and her parents always sent her to English language camps in the summer. Now she spoke English really well, but she didn't have very much vocabulary or grammar, but her accent was not a French accent, let's say, because she learned when she was young. And I just remember one time, you know, many times she couldn't think of the words she wanted to say, and I'd have to give her the word, but no accent. And for me, like I have recently been learning Dutch. I recently moved to Belgium on the Dutch side, even though I speak French. And I have met actually many uh, refugees and many immigrants to Belgium, including this, uh, uh, an Iraqi man. And, um, you know, he speaks extremely fluent Dutch, but with an accent, but I mean, he learned it as an adult. He migrated to Belgium as an adult. So I think it has a lot to do with motivation. You know, it doesn't have to just do with nature. And uh, when I actually learned French and when I learned um, uh, Swahili, I was actually living in Zaire and they encourage, uh, encouraged us to talk to children because they use simple vocabulary and simple words. I think that's a good way to learn. Now, I don't want to underestimate the importance of accent when you speak a language, because I have noticed uh, a lot of teacherpreneurs are giving special classes and helping people get rid of their accents if they do have a strong accent, and it has to do with employability. So you have a lot of people migrating to America, migrating to the UK, and if they don't have, you know, a posh British, British accent or an, a, 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 what we call it, a, a CNN accent, you know, so people are willing to pay to speak English in a certain way. And I do think it's um, difficult to not have an accent if you learn as, as an adult, but it is achievable if you are motivated and you have the right teacher. Yes, I totally agree with you, uh, Melanie. 
on both fronts. I have learned um, several different languages as an adult. I studied French since I was a child and then learned Spanish, Romanian, and Indonesian as an adult, um, I was saying after 25 years old. So I definitely concur that I, I think the main, the reason why we have the myth, I think is because we as adults develop more inhibitions as we get older. And I think the inhibitions raise our affective filter, which then inhibits us from, even trying to talk because we're embarrassed that we're going to make mistakes, whereas children don't have those same inhibitions. So that's my theory, if you will, one of my theories. And secondly, motivation is a huge factor. I think a lot of adult study language tend to typically in like university settings, those kind of things where there may be required to learn the language versus really want to learn the language for a certain purpose. However, English language learners are learning it um, as immigrants or refugees integrating in the country, I've seen tremendous success. I've worked very closely with refugees and immigrants learning English in the United States. And I'm incredibly impressed about how well they learn English as adults, having not studied it as children. So I debunk that theory. Again, I think it's motivation and inhibition. I do, I, I do object to what you said about the effective filter and adults being nervous. I think it depends on the individual. It wasn't sure. important to me if I had a good French accent or not. It wasn't important to me if I was mistaken for a French speaker, nor was it important for me to have a perfect Dutch accent. So I didn't have a very high effective filter, but That's I mean, great. I think this depends also, you know, on catch. Catro's inner and outer circles of English. Of course, of course. I think you're unique though, <laughs> not having those inhibitions. I think a lot of other people are more inhibited, but I agree with you 100%. It all depends on the personality of the individual. So yeah. let's jump into- so Don't mind if you make mistakes, basically. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, speakers of the language are not tuning in on your mistakes, whether they're accent or grammar or vocabulary. Maybe not your teacher, but a real native speaker is going to try to help you speak the language and feed you what you need. So tips for takeaway tips for our listeners and our teachers out there is to help your learners realize that help them bring down their filter if they have them and realize that the pronunciation isn't so important. It's just they need to start producing the language and encourage that production of language. Yeah. Great, let's jump into myth number two about the which mother is, tongue. Which is, yeah, we stop using the mother tongue, don't use the mother tongue in classes. I think this comes from the communicative language teaching that was very prominent, I think, in the 80s. And, um, you know, I actually met a Portuguese woman married to an American in Riyadh. She was a hairdresser. I went there to get my hair done and she was sending her child to the American school. And they'd actually told the woman, don't speak Portuguese at home with your child. For me, this was very shocking. I mean, I also raised my children in a bilingual household. My husband always spoke French to them and I always spoke English. So I think it kind of like makes the teacher's job easier but then you deprive your children of the gift of being bilingual, which I think is far more important than uh, uh, making the teacher's job easier because children are like, their whole brain is geared toward learning languages and they can learn two or three at once. And yes, they will mix them up a bit. And yes, they might lag behind their peers, 
But uh, the gift of speaking more than one language is so important. And I'll give you another example of that, something new that's happening in the English language field. I think we all know about code switching. And when I actually did my MA, code switching was a way to say like poo poo, you know, don't speak a little bit of French and then switch to a little bit of English and then switch back to French because you are, you know, code switching. And it was like, it's, you know, not as good or as pure. And now here, like my children have grown up with Lebanese uh, nationals who easily switch between English, French, and Arabic, and the demand that we put on their brains to accomplish that. And of course, all the new theory is about translanguaging. And I asked someone, okay, what is the difference between translanguaging and code switching? Well, code switching has negative connotations, but translanguaging simply means we use all of our language resources together to communicate. And I've always known that as someone who did speak more than one language, tell me not to use translation. That was my original vocabulary notebook. So I think we should embrace that uh, translanguaging and that people can use all of their language resources to communicate. And many languages, it's not just English, nowadays use words from other languages and that, the cognates are great. So, you know, stop using the mother tongue, uh, stop, stop using the mother tongue in the classroom, I don't think so. And I think that the classroom with only, uh, with a bunch of different speakers from different countries, that classroom only exists and uh, perhaps in US IEP classrooms or, or uh, British uh, pre-university classrooms because every classroom I've ever taught has been only monolingual speakers. Yes, I agree with you 100% on, on the myth of not using the mother tongue. I taught in bilingual education department uh, for a number of years at Boise State University. And even years ago, we had the whole philosophy again to the importance of building on the students' background knowledge be it Spanish, for example, in this case in Idaho, there's a large uh, Spanish population, which we worked with in the bilingual ed department. And we always actually did the opposite. We really tried to build on the students' foundational language, their mother tongue, and use that as a stepping stone uh, to build on that foundation again. And having that as a background can be a huge asset other than telling them not to use it and not to, to almost forget their mother tongue or not to speak it. And I too have taught at, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, let's face it also, sometimes it's so much easier to so, show a picture of a strawberry than try to describe one for half an hour. <laughs> exactly, or say the word presa in, in Spanish or whatever it might be, instead of like you're saying pantomiming and trying to find a picture of one if you don't have that accessible, right? Um, I also was just gonna mention, I've been teaching at Florida State um, College of Jacksonville and have had you know Ukrainians and people from the Middle East, different countries, all in the same classroom in South Central and South America, and I allow them and to you know pair up and speak if they need some support in their mother tongue, and then we go back to English. But I don't think there's a deficit or a detriment to the learning of English. I think it can actually be an asset if you, as the teacher, facilitate that environment so they can help each other to understand a concept, and then you go back to English you know, discussion in your classroom. I actually think it's very, I think it's very funny and it's a myth propagated a long time by certain qualifications. Uh, it's influenced by the communicative language approach, but perhaps also by 
some qualifications available in England and you'll even be judged or evaluated on a teacher if you let the students use their own language or and, and I've even seen teachers evaluated poorly not to pass their probation period because they let uh, some Arabic come in the classroom or Persian come in the classroom. And, you know, but the truth is the real truth, all teachers who are good teachers have always allowed some non-target language use in the classroom. Let's be real. <laughs> I agree. And rather than make it hush-hush, allow it and enable it in a positive way so that people feel their first language is embraced and supported. And again, use it as a foundation for building on. I agree with and you. And there's a new term for it. It's called translanguaging. <laughs> Great. I like all the new terminology. Thank you, Melanie. So our last very brief lead a myth is grammar focus. How we tend to focus a lot on grammar as a way to learn master language. Could you quickly address that one for us? I have something to say about that. We've all heard the statement that, you know, without grammar, you can't say very much, but with vocabulary, you can't say without vocabulary, you can't say anything. We all know that's true. And if you're speaking to a native speaker and you say, you know, yesterday I ate my shoes, that doesn't make any sense. But if you say yesterday I eat my breakfast, they understand perfectly. Okay, so and I think so I think like native speakers are much more forgiving of grammar mistakes than teachers. So we have to ask ourselves, why do teachers and students like doing and it's not just teachers, students also like doing grammar. We have to admit there's something so comforting about filling in those gap fills. It's almost like a crossword puzzle or wordle, right? I mean, it's very comforting for the teachers. It's not much work. And for the students, it's very comforting. And this methodology was used a lot when I first started teaching in the Gulf area. And it is very comforting. So I don't think we should forbid grammar gap fields, but we should keep them in their place. Now, I would like to give just one example of, uh, and, and teachers, of course, love grammar. That's why we became teachers of English as a second language, because we're all good at grammar and we love it. And that's how we learn. But that's not necessarily true for students that may be doctors or engineers or graphic designers. They don't necessarily love grammar as much as, much as we do. And some uh, people who are language learners have a firm foundation of grammar in their own language, but others don't. Arabic has a very highly sophisticated grammar, and they say that you have to study it up to university level to be proficient in it. So that doesn't really help my students if I talk about nouns or verbs, you know, they might not exactly understand this meta language for learning. But the last thing I will say is some of my very best language learners that I have ever taught were video gamers, and I'm sure other teachers have experienced this around the world. And uh, they weren't always like A students from school by the time I got them and taught them, but they could say things like, I will have been using this for uh, two weeks, and things like, I will have been having... Uh, you know, my mother-in-law lived with me for four years. And I think this, I think I was making notes. I think this tense, it's called the future perfect passive continuous. It's extremely rare. But I have heard gamers use that tense automatically. 
So, I mean, people will learn grammar when they learn a language, but not necessarily by overtly studying it. And that's my experience also in learning a Dutch and French. Right, and I too believe that you can learn grammar subconsciously. Uh, one technique that I use a lot is through music. And also, as you mentioned earlier, speaking with children, you learn a lot in the subconscious level of grammar. But I agree with you also, you know, there's so many books with all the grammar focus on them. And that's, I think, why we get in that rut, if you will. Very comforting. Um, Sometimes I just want to not feel grammar at the end of the day. But not to get stuck in there and use grammar as a tool like we do vocabulary, but again, get outside the box of grammar to be able to actualize it in context, I think is so important. Well, now that we're, we've wrapped up a couple of those myths, we will put the reference to this article in our show notes and are very thankful for your time today, Melanie, with debunking some of these myths for English language teachers. We'd love to have you join us again for a future episode. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you very much for having me.